tonight's talk is on equanimity. And you've heard equanimity mentioned in many talks because it comes at the end of many lists. You've heard a number of talks on the paramis and the equanimity is the 10th of the paramis. Greg talked uh, last week about the seven spiritual, seven factors of enlightenment and equanimity is the seventh of those. The four Brahma-viharas, equanimity is the fourth. Equanimity is considered the highest mundane state that we can rest in. That is, it's not Nibbana, it's not the unconditioned, but in the conditioned, it is the highest mental state and experience and openness of the heart. And as you can tell from these different lists, the equanimity has a lot of facets to it. And it has a lot of levels uh, for us to experience. So in many ways, our practice is an exploration and an ever-deepening and um, ever subtler understanding of the depths of equanimity. And so we have new experiences of it. And then we have another one and a little different one. And it's like we're working our ways around this wonderful many-faceted crystal and finding our way into the depths in the middle of it. So I'm going to talk about some of these different facets this evening. And I don't think this is a, um, this isn't a definitive, everything is covered talk because equanimity is quite large. It's a very big and important part of our practice. I want to share with you a story from, um, a trip that I took a number of years ago. I went to India and I was on Buddhist pilgrimage there. And this is something I highly recommend um, if you ever get the chance or if you, many of you may already have done something like this and you will know and you'll recognize as I talk. The, um, it's quite inspiring to go to where the Buddha was born and where the Buddha was enlightened and where he first shaved his head and became an ascetic and where, you know, those things that you may have heard, Anapindaka's Grove and Anapindaka's Park and Jetta's Grove and places like that. You can actually go and visit these places where he gave the very first sutta on the Four Noble Truths. These, place, place, these are real places. And to go there is quite inspiring. So I undertook this journey with a friend. And the one aspect of this is that these places are all in the poorest part of India, in the poorest state of India. And it can be a fairly difficult place to travel, to, it's hard to stay wet, healthy. Um, and I knew that before we went. I had heard a lot of stories. I knew lots of things happen. And I had an amazing experience on my trip and in the time there. I had the m- most consistent unremitting ease and well-being. Here I was in what was I was told were the these really difficult conditions and I could look around and say, yeah, these are difficult. And yet there was no problems. There was nothing that um, overwhelmed me. And this became really apparent. Uh, here's a one example is um, 
And the reason I say this is to say this is not true in my daily life, just so you, so there was a contrast that was quite noticeable that especially when I came back, I really spent time trying to look at and understand what was different, what was going on on this, during this time that was different. So at one point we had um, crossed over the border into Nepal because the um, birthplace of the Buddha is actually in the current day Nepal. And at that time they had enacted a new set of rules at the border. And the new set of rules had to do with once you left the country, you weren't allowed back in for three months. But what we didn't know, and the border people didn't tell us, was that there was a specific exception for people on the um, going to the Buddha on the Buddhist pilgrimage, that when the people in Delhi had made this rule, they knew that people go back and forth there. But it was much more convenient for the, the border guards not to share that piece of information because then there was a whole, um, what you call it, little side market going on in all this money you had to pay to be allowed to get back in and all these sort of shenanigans that... Um, it turned out they were basically charging you for what you were had had full permission to do, but we didn't know that. So um, we were coming back in, and one of the the little things that they told us we had to do was be there at like 4:30 a.m. at the at the border to get back. So we came in, and the border's closed at 4:30 a.m. So we were in a car. Um, somebody else was, you know, a local person was driving and we pulled up and we went with, we had a guide who seemed to have a situation slightly more figured out than us, but I wouldn't say he had it wired at all. Um, so we walked, he said, okay, follow me. And we went up and we left our car and we walked up sort of towards where the border was. And there was nobody there, and he was wandering around trying to find somebody. And he sort of, and he left us, and we were standing on this, in this very misty, dark night. And there were a couple of very raw-looking street lamps, and there were all these cars and lorries parked along the way, empty. It was all dark. There was nobody around. We were sort of standing next to this building. We weren't even sure if we were in Nepal or in India at this point. There's nobody around. Our guide disappears. We don't know where the car isn't there anymore. And I remember standing there with my friend and we were sort of looking at each other and going, should we be worried? And we said, I don't think we should bother. We're not going to do anything different anyway. So we stood there, and 20 minutes went by, and 40 minutes went by, and out, just standing there in the dark, looking at the streetlight, looking at the lorries, and we just stood there. Just waited to see what was going to happen. And I noticed as this was going on. This is different. This is not the way I usually behave. <laughs> usually I go and try to solve the problem and figure out what to do, but there was nothing to do. So we just stood there. Eventually we did get through the border and it was fine. What was different? What was different? A big difference was that we didn't have a lot of expectations of things being a certain way. We really honestly didn't know how they were going to be. And our task, our total job was to be present, to be mindful of what was happening and see if there was some way we needed to respond. And if not, wait and see. And there was such ease in that. 
And then I come back and, you know, I'm impatient if it takes two, two more seconds than I want for the light to change. Where does that, all that expectation and idea come from? The Buddha describes the mind filled with equanimity. Now this is, remember I said there were gradations of equanimity, so I'm not claiming that that last one was this. But on a higher level, he says, the mind filled with equanimity is abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. That sounds pretty wonderful, doesn't it? Abundant, exalted, immeasurable. So that is that, that movement that we're moving towards, this open and expansive mind. The word yupeka is defined, it has a few definitions, but the actual, um, you know, if you translate it straight, one translation is to look over. And this is expressing this ability to see what's there without being caught. Another translation of actually a different word, um, but that we also translate as equanimity, similar meaning is to stand in the middle of all of this. To stand in the middle of all of this. The colloquial use of the word yupeka at the time of the Buddha was to see with patience, or you might say with understanding. It's often talked about as grandmother, grandmother or grandfatherly love. Because there, if you're a grandparent, and I see it in people I know who are grandparents, they have a very different relationship to their grandparents than the parents. They've been through it. They sort of, you know the ropes, and there's a kind of ease that is possible that for the parents isn't. Other words that are used to describe equanimity, evenness, spaciousness, openness, unshakability, and steadiness. And then another aspect, relaxed, centered, (coughs) present, clear a sense of well-being, of confidence, of vitality and integrity. Some refer to it as the ballast that keeps a ship upright in the strong winds. I like that. There's some elements of it here that I want to pull out. One is that there's clarity to see things as they are, the mindfulness that we are so carefully attending to here. And there's connection, connection to what's happening. You know, that vichara and vitaka and being right there with it. And there's confidence and faith that it's unfolding in an, as it should, in a natural way, that there is an understanding that things are playing out in a way that actually makes sense. We may not be able to figure it all out directly, but it is playing itself out. And with this also comes a sense of peace and ease. That's often the um, tone. That's almost what we, um, in your sitting, you might connect first um, and notice what's happening with that peace and ease. And then if you look back, you might be able to see that these other factors are in place, that there's clarity and connection and a confidence. And then you can notice this in your practice, and this is true in life as well, that equanimity gives us great energy. It gives us the ability to do things. There's a 
a confidence in our movement. There's a wonderful story that Gandhi, about Gandhi at one point leading one of his, uh, there was a big march and um, action. And he felt, he could feel his own wanting it to happen, it wanting it to go right, that it wasn't going to be okay, and he, or not that it, that it, not that it wasn't going to be okay, that he wanted it very much to be okay, and that there was a fear of it not being okay, not going well, and he said, "I can't do it," and he went back to his home, and he sat in his home for days until. He had the ease and the equanimity, the equipoise is another word, to be able to step into it fully committed without the clinging, without that. As soon as we're clinging, we've moved out of the equanimity. I want to say a little bit about what is not equanimity. The near enemy is often spoken of as indifference. And there's a lot of different aspects to that. Detachment, aloofness, holding at arm's length, at a distance. And you can feel how these qualities do not have those other ones. There's not connection. There's not clarity. There's a distancing, not actually wanting to contact what's happening. There can be a superiority or a standing above kind of looking down on. Remember the definition, to stand in the middle of all this. If you're standing above, you're not there. You're not in the middle of it. I think as children, Many of us um, learn, or even, even as young adults, and we learn a kind of um, a, a, a false evenness. You know, the, the classic answer of, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. You know, what, fine? What's fine? You know, fine means that whatever's going on here, I'm not going to acknowledge it, and I'm not going to tell you about it. We're not going there. Avoidance of our discomfort. And we can use our spiritual practice to go there even more. You know, there's a way we can use our spiritual practice to try to skip over what's actually happening and get to that smooth, easy stuff. I am sure... If you haven't done it yet, maybe another retreat. But probably almost everybody here at some point on this retreat has tried to get to this, a place of ease and peace and skip over whatever was happening here. We so want to do that. Did it work? <laughs> probably not. There's also a kind of numbness and dissociation that can look like something's all calm and easeful. Um, Many years ago, I was a search and rescue ranger in Yosemite. And in that situation, I, there were many wonderful things about it. I, it was wonderful when you found the lost kid, you helped somebody get out of a bad situation, you rescued somebody. But there was also, unfortunately, um, some stuff that wasn't very good, picking people up and when things didn't go well. And um, I had done this for a couple of years, and I remember somebody asking me, well, how, how is this going? And I said, well, it seems fine. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm doing this. And then I had a, uh, it wasn't long after that, I had a dream. And in the dream, I was standing on one side and there was a river of blood I was trying to get across. I think maybe something was suppressed. (laughs) 
And when we're on retreat, all these places that we push away, that we don't want to face, that have happened in our lives, when we get calm, then these things come up. Everything that stands between us and really connecting, really being present with ourselves, really being with what's happening, comes up. That's the practice. That's what we are looking for. So we're like, we've got, we've in this space of peace and ease and everything's fine. And you're there for a, a sit or two or a number of days. And then there's a big volcano, right? It's like, whoa. And sometimes the volcano is um, helped from something, some incident outside us. Sometimes it just seems internal. We don't know, but there's this big upheaval. And that's actually a delicious and wonderful part of our practice because what's happened is we're, our equanimity is settling. We're going deeper and deeper and we've bumped into the next layer of what interrupts our practice. And this isn't always the pattern, but you might notice sometimes that this pattern happens, that you settle, settle, and then what is disruptive? What isn't allowing you to settle deeper comes in and we're with it. And we have to connect with that. Ajahn Chah has a wonderful quote that you might be familiar with. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become quieter and quieter in any surroundings. It will become still like a clear forest pool. Then all kinds of wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool. You will see clearly the nature of all things in the world. You will see many wonderful and strange things come and go. But you will be still. Problems will arise and you will see through them immediately. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So even if you don't see through them immediately, we usually see through them eventually. And this stillness and these different animals that come into it. And part of our task on retreat is to welcome them, to meet each one. Equanimity is not a static place. It's not someplace we get to and get to stay there. It's more of a, a balance, a responsiveness to what's happening. It's not a static state. The image is often used of the surfer. You know, that the, every wave's different, every moment on the wave's different. And the trick is to learn to surf with what is happening right then, in that moment. And for those of you who aren't surfers, I mean, it's not any different to ride a bicycle. It's just we've gotten so used to riding a bicycle that we forget what an incredible balancing act it is. Equanimity is talked is is uh, another phrase is equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. I'm going to come back to that part, the rooted in insight. But that balance of mind. Here's a poem from Li Po that I like. The birds have vanished into the sky and now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain in me until only the mountain remains. There's a simplicity in this balance. Nothing has to be changed. Nothing has to be modified in the world or in us. There's a wonderful phrase, in, and this too, and this too. Ajahn Sumedho has this wonderful thing, movement with his hand, and this too, 
Often a word that can be helpful if we don't grab onto it too tightly is spaciousness. That there's a way that in the place of equanimity, there's room for everything to arise. We don't have to interrupt it. We can let it take its natural course. The space is really big. And it all happens within that. This non-reactive place of composure and evenness. Especially in the state, in, in the face of stress. So that's where it gets a little more complicated, right? Things happen that tend to rock us. I, uh, as I think Sally mentioned when she introduced me, I lead um, retreats in the natural environment quite a bit. And one of the things I really love about doing that is that there's a lot you can't control. So one of the big ones you can't control is the weather. And of course, as somebody you know, involved in planning them with other people and stuff, you know, you try to choose the perfect time of year and the perfect place so that the weather's going to be good. And well, you know how that goes. Um, this spring, we, I led a, uh, a group of Dharma practitioners and we went to Peru and we went trekking in the Andes. And it rained and it rained. And during part of it, we were doing a silent number of days. And I remember one day it it rained a lot of the day and everybody got quite cold and wet. And that evening we were in camp and clustered around in a little tent all gathered up. And it was remarkable to me as I found over and over again When you bring your mindfulness to it, there wasn't a problem. Everybody there was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was really wet. Let's see, I really felt, you know, the feeling of wetness on my skin. And then there was the way the cloud moved around the rock. And then there was the thought in my mind, I wonder if I'm too cold. And then there was the bird that flitted. And it's really interesting to me, and I have to regain, I gain so much faith in the practice and our capacity to do this. When I go with um, practitioners, people who are brand new even, and go into that circumstance, and when you pay attention, it's actually not a problem. that our mindfulness can take us right through it. And the weather is so, such a good practice for this because um, there's no idea that somebody can take care of it. You know, If your room's cold, you might have the idea that something's gone wrong and that somebody should fix it. But if you're out there and it's cold, there's not nobody to... There's there's no facilities manager to talk to. And I think this is really helpful for our practice. This is the way it is. Equanimity, we have also the, the equanimity is helpful in meeting the vicissitudes of life. The vicissitudes are the eight, the eight worldly winds. You may have heard of them. Certainly you've experienced them. Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. So praise and blame. All the ways that this comes to us. And I want to say, I really... This comes to us internally too, right? The praise may be external and external and the blame internal, or they might both be out there. We don't know. 
And the, in case you wondered if this is like the way our culture is now, but didn't used to be that way, here's from the Buddha. They find fault in one sitting silently. They find fault in one speaking much. They find fault in one speaking moderately. No one in this world is not found at fault. There has been, there is, and there will be no person who is only criticized or only praised. Boy, we're all in for it. And I think we know that. It happens again and again. And, you know, and there's a, we have this incredible way that the praise bounces off us like Teflon and the, uh, like we're Teflon and the blame, uh, we hit sticks to us like Velcro. But the equanimity to just see this is happening, this is going by. These are the conditions unfolding. The Buddha made a recommendation to his son, Rahula. Here he, uh, he was giving him a discourse. And I love this. He says, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For then agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean and unclean on the earth, excrement, urine, saliva, pus, or blood. Buddha never holds back on those words, I've noticed. The earth is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted by it. In the same way, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions will not take charge of your mind when you develop meditation like the earth. And he goes on to say, develop meditation like the air, like the water, like space, like fire. And then these things will pass through you. They won't stick. There's a wonderful story that relates to the gain and loss that I really like about, so there's a, I believe it's a Nazardine story but I couldn't find it. I've only heard it orally. So there's a man and he lives out in the, out on the edge of a village and he, he loses his horse, runs away. It breaks out of the corral and it runs off and people say, Oh, too bad. I'm so sorry about your horse. And he goes, "Mm, maybe so, maybe, maybe yes, maybe no. And a day or so later, a few days, the horse comes back and it's got another horse with him, with it. So he bring, it was a wild horse and he brings it in and it's a big, beautiful horse. And people say, oh, so lucky. Now you have two horses. Maybe yes, maybe no. Then his son is trying to break the horse. The horse throws him, breaks his leg. People say, oh, that's horrible. Oh, my God, how can, oh, now what are you going to do? Maybe yes, maybe no. And then the um, king's uh, conscriptors come to the town, and they take all the young, able-bodied young men. The son with the broken leg stays. People say, oh, wow, you really lucked out. Maybe yes, maybe no. And you can imagine the story can continue. Haven't you seen this in your life? Something happens which seems like it's just not going to be okay. And then sh- it might be shortly thereafter or much thereafter you realize, huh, Shakespeare had it right. Much ado about nothing. Basho says, since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. There's fame and disrepute. Of course, we can think of many examples of that. There are 
All you have to do is look at the political world to see that one. Pleasure and pain. The body is going along perfectly and then it's not going along perfectly. I love it. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, you're going along and then uh, you get a toothache and it's and then you're really upset. And then the toothache goes away. And he, he says, so what I do is remember that I don't have a toothache and then I'm happy. How many things do you not have going on that have happened in your past? The older you are, the more of them you have. I can vouch for that. And through it all, we just keep winding our way. These ups and downs. It's a wonderful poem by William Stafford, The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread but it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you, can get, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. I see the Dharma as our thread. The ability to see and connect with what's happening, to be in it without being caught, without being swept off our feet. The talk about patience a few nights ago is key in this. Can you feel that? Patience and equanimity are so, they're they're so closely connected. Also in equanimity, is the open, the openness, the warmth of the Brahma Viharas. That, that we are um, right there. That that element of welcoming and accepting is warm. Oh, there's a story about a man who had um, Alzheimer's and he was still, he was living at home and um, his wife was there, but he no longer could recognize people. He couldn't recognize his, um, his children and other people. And it's a wonderful story of him going to the front door and opening the door. It was actually one of his kids and him saying, I don't know who you are, but please come in. I love that. May we be so. To welcome, no matter who shows up at the door, there's always room. Equanimity gives metta its steadiness, the ability to continue to hold that potential for safety and wellness and happiness for ourselves and for others. You can feel if you just do the meta without any equanimity, you're going you're gonna to get discouraged, right? Because it's not always there. Meta is about the potential. And we have to be willing to be with the way it is, even while we offer the metta. Equanimity is an absolutely critical support of compassion. A number of years ago, I was, we were doing another retreat on the north coast of California, and this only happened one year. But we were walking up the coast, and there were all these, um, I hope I can share this without tearing up, but um, there were all these baby sea lions up on the shore. And at first we thought, oh, they're that great. Look, they're so cute. And, and then we started to realize they were really sick. And then we saw a couple that were dead. 
And it was just heart-wrenching. And we see in other beings and in other people immense suffering. And it's the equanimity that keeps us from becoming overwhelmed, getting lost in the sorrow. As Nyanaponika says, it gives us an an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling compassion to face awesome abyss, face the awesome abyss of misery and despair. It's equanimity that keeps us from falling in completely, to actually care about each one of those sea lions and yet not to, to be willing to connect and yet to not fall down and not be able to move on. We have to have the equanimity. One way I think of it is as the great compassion has equanimity in it. Um, You've seen the picture of Kuan Yin, the great compassion, and she has one tear falling from, and one foot is out in front of her getting ready to help. But she's not, the compassion is stable and upright. This is the equanimity supporting the compassion. And joy, too, needs equanimity. Without that, then when other people are, um, when other people's joy, we get, we fall into that. You know, we, we also can fall into clinging and covetousness and um, not, uh, not have the balance to see it as the natural unfolding of the conditions that allowed it to happen, to take joy in it, but not to get caught and think that's the way it always has to be, to cling and hold to that. In our practices of the Brahma Viharas, we really, one of the things that we really are working towards, and you, you've been through the friend, you know, the benefactor and the friend and the neutral person and the difficult person, this expansion of each of the Brahma Viharas to include all beings, to move out into the world, is cultivating this aspect of equanimity, of impartiality, of including everyone, every being. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the perfection of equanimity is the attitude of impartiality toward desirable and undesirable beings and formations, dispelling attraction and appulsion, accompanied by compassion and skillful means. Attitude of impartiality, accompanied by compassion and skillful means. We start out small in our world. We start out with the affinity for our family, for those close to us, our friends. And a big part of our practice is this expansion out into the tribe, out bigger into across the world and to other species. We're stretching, we're developing our capacity A lot of what we're doing when we sit here on the cushion is developing our capacity, expanding. It's like we all go along life with a certain bandwidth in which we're comfortable and we're okay functioning. And then when something, when we go out of the bandwidth, you know, we get too hungry, we get too tired, things don't go the way we want. We go outside of the bandwidth and then our reactivity shows up, right? And then we... Things don't go so smoothly. And a lot of what we're doing when we practice is expanding the bandwidth and expanding it until the mind of a Buddha has no limits to the bandwidth, to its capacity. 
that's why, you know, it's like um, if you're rowing a rowboat across the lake and you go out and you get in the rowboat and it's peaceful and calm and beautiful and you row across the lake and it's lovely and that's very nice. And then you come back and you say, oh, it was a great set. And then you get into the rowboat the next day and the wind is blowing against you and the waves are high and you get about part way off and then you get exhausted and you get pushed back to the shore and you go, oh, that was a disaster. Which one did you actually get stronger in? What helped you build your capacity, your willingness to step out into the wind and the rain and the the waves. That's why we tell you over and over again that those sits, that when it's rough, that actually something very important is happening there. To be willing to sit through that is to broaden our capacity. We see that we can meet our suffering and that of others. So the last aspect that I want to talk about of these different facets is the wisdom piece, the rooted in insight part of the phrase. And fortunately, I can talk about this rather quickly because you've heard so many Dharma talks that really are giving, are pointing to this. Because we're not, um, this quality of, of, Equanimity is not an emotional emptiness. It's actually a fullness of understanding. And that fullness of understanding, fundamental to it, is the understanding of karma. uh, Greg has offered a few of these things that sum up the relationship of equanimity to other characteristics. And here, equanimity has the characteristic of promoting the aspect of neutrality. That's where I was talking about impartiality. Its function is to see things impartially. Its manifestation is the subsiding of attraction and repulsion. So aversion and greed subside. Reflection upon the fact that all beings inherent inherit the results of their own karma is the proximate cause. In order to have equanimity with what happens, with what's going on, we have to see that things are unfolding in a lawful way, that causes and conditions are playing out. The second aspect of being rooted in insight is the understanding of not-self, not taking anything as I, me, and mine, not taking it personally. We can't even take our equanimity personally. There's a wonderful quote in the suttas of Ananda asking um, the Buddha, why do some people attain Nibbana and some don't. And the Buddha says about the, having abandoned I, me, and mine, so people have gotten to that point. Having done that, thus she obtains equanimity, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. As she does so, her consciousness becomes dependent on it and clings to it. A Bhikkhu Ananda, who is affected by clinging, does not attain Nibbana. Once again, as Joseph would say, it does not matter to what you do not cling, even equanimity. So how do we get there? How do we cultivate this? You're doing it. You're doing it. Equanimity is an emergent quality. It comes out of our practice. We don't, 
we, we can cultivate it in the Brahma Viharas, which I'll talk a little bit about the phrase, but even there, it's an emergent quality that comes out of our mindfulness. The moment to moment mindfulness. And as we move from resistance to receptivity and responsiveness, And I know each of you have seen yourself do this, either long-term in your practice, or even if you've been just sitting a shorter time here on the cushion in your life, that movement from reactivity. I'm going to read you a little story called Golfing in Calcutta. The story is told of a golf course in India. Apparently, once the English had colonized the country and established their businesses, they yearned for recreation and decided to build a golf course in Calcutta. Golf in Calcutta presented some unique obstacles. Monkeys would drop out of the trees, scurry across the course, and seize the golf balls. The monkeys would play with the balls, tossing them here and there. At first, the golfers tried to control the monkeys. Their first strategy was was to build high fences around the fairways and greens. This approach, which seems initially to hold much promise, was abandoned when the golfers discovered that a fence is no challenge to an ambitious monkey. Next, the golfers tried luring the monkeys away from the course, but the monkeys found nothing as amusing as watching humans go wild whenever their little white balls were disturbed. (laughs) In desperation, the British began trapping the monkeys. But for every monkey they carted off, another would appear. Finally, the golfers gave in to reality and developed a rather novel ground rule. Play the ball where the monkey drops it. (laughs) So that's a good rule for life, isn't it? Play the ball where the monkey drops it. So we can study all the different ways that we are reactive, the ways we build the fence, or we try to trap the monkey, or we try to trick it. And this is how we learn about our reactivity. And then as we learn about our reactivity, we can drop some of that and come more and more to a state of acceptance and responsiveness to what's happening. We can give careful balance to how our careful attention to how our balance is lost, where we get confused, and how we might be able to respond differently in that situation. Equanimity is giving up our attempts of control, and instead of controlling, being with what is and responding skillfully. Rio Khan has a wonderful poem. Without desire, everything is sufficient. With seeking, myriad things are impoverished. Plain vegetables can soothe hunger. A patched robe is enough to cover this bent old body. Alone I hike with a deer. Cheerfully I sing with village children. The stream under the cliff cleanses my ears. The pine on the mountain top fits my heart. It's a great feeling, I think, and I think that a lot of poetry really points us to this state of being. Because equanimity isn't um, something we acquire or we own or we can hang on to and keep. It's a way of being. It's a way of um, interacting, connecting, opening our heart, living in the world. So I want to end by reading you a story. 
that is, I think, a wonderful example of the, oh, we can sometimes think of equanimity as very um, silent and dour and solid. And I think it's something else much lighter, much lighter. This is from Ian Baker from his book, The Heart of the World. And they're hiking in the Tibetan rainforest. Today was particularly bad for me as the rain would not let up and the leeches were relentless. At one point, I counted 22 of them sucking on me at the same time. Sloshing along the muddy trail in the pounding rain, I came upon a large slimy log that had fallen chest high across our brush-choked path. In my agitated state, I viewed the log as a menacing obstacle that was clearly separate, in my way and against me. With no way under or around, I jumped, stomach first, and slid over the top, regaining my balance on the other side. I was infuriated at the mud and decaying mush that seemed to have covered the entire front of my body. Rubbing off the crud, I cursed the log and the goddamned rain. It was my brother Todd who suggested that we wait and see how the llama would handle this formidable impediment. Surely this test would break him. Hiding off the trail, we peeked through the underbrush just in time to see him trudge up to the log. Ever smiling, he took a couple of steps back and tried his jump with a running start. With not enough momentum, coupled with a portly belly, he slid back down on the same side of the log and landed on his back in a large puddle. Shaking his rain-drenched head, he burst into spasms of uproarious laughter. Staggering to his feet, he repeated the same maneuver with the same results. (laughs) no less than three times. With each collapse back into the puddle, his laughter grew stronger and louder. On his fourth attempt, he made it over the top and slid headlong into the muddy puddle on the other side. Again, the laughter was knee-slapping. Continuing to chuckle, he wiped himself off as best he could, lovingly patted the log as though it was a dear friend, and proceeded up the trail smiling. Todd and I just stared at each other. (laughs) Let's sit for a few minutes. Without desire, everything is sufficient. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. 